Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. The book of Acts this morning, chapter 21. Chapter 21, we will take verses, we'll stand and read verses 27 through 32, but we will go to verse 40 with the exposition. So, having your Bibles open, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 21, verses 27 to 32-ish. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in uproar. He immediately took soldiers and the centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw that the commander and soldiers... When they saw the commander and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Please be seated. Guilty of Christianity. That's the title for this morning's consideration. If you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's an old question that Christians used to ask. Uh, Would you be guilty of loving the word of Christ? Would you be guilty of standing against the world, would you be guilty of biblical Christianity? Well, that's a question each of us should have a ready answer for. Without hesitation, that answer should should, uh, be ready. In this section of what, what is going on here, as you might remember, Paul has come to Jerusalem. This is his fifth recorded visit to Jerusalem since he's been converted by Christ. And this time the church in Jerusalem wants him to appease the Jewish believers, the the Messianic Jews, you could could say, uh, to demonstrate how Jewish Paul still is. And they want him to pay for it. They made that after Paul donated the money from the other churches, the, the Gentile churches otherwise. Okay, never mind. It's too early for humor. Coming back to this, Uh, They wanted Paul to pay for it. And these Jewish believers had taken the Nazarite vow, and that involved uh, a process that took about a week to conclude, purification rites, and then finally the shaving of the hair and the offering at the altar. And uh, this, um, this was something that Paul was entangled with. And so was James, largely, And uh, so here we are. He's coming to Jerusalem. And for his teachings, while he was, you know, he would come to Jerusalem, go out to the world, come to back and forth. Uh, During those intervening years, he won a vast multitude of Jews and Gentiles to Christ and established churches all the way to Europe. For this, the unbelieving Jews hated him. The Messianic Jews had a big problem with him, many of them. So we look at verse 27. We'll come back to some of this. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, this Nazarite uh, vow can be found in number six. It goes back to verse 24, where there were four of these Messianic Jews who took this vow. Uh, Jerusalem Jews were... Uh, known, especially them, to continue observing aspects of Moses' law. Now, there were largely four types of Jews that uh, you would face in that time in history in the world, probably still to this day. There were the Jews that were unsaved, who were hostile to Christ. For example, Caiaphas, uh, he totally was against Christ. When we get to chapter 23... We will find 40 of them take a vow 
to assassinate Paul. They hated him that much uh, because there was that much evidence that Paul was a Christian. His teachings from Galatians, Romans, and Corinthians, and Thessalonians were already in circulation. Another type of Jew you would encounter then, as, as today, would be an apostate Jew, one who had fallen from the faith. Elimus, the sorcerer, uh, he was one such person. We read about him earlier in Acts. And then there were those Jews that were saved. They believed that Jesus was the Christ, and they had no need for the Mosaic rituals. They did not feel, uh, they, they may have still respected them, but it was not something that they attached to salvation. The fourth type were those who were saved, who believed that Jesus indeed was the Messiah, but they continued with the rituals. James was, was in this group. And there appears to be levels of how seriously they took the rights of Moses. In chapter 15, in the first verse, we're told straight out that there were those Jews that claimed Christ as Messiah who believed you couldn't be saved unless you were circumcised, which also meant you, you had to follow all the other laws of Moses. And uh, so, of course, the church put that down. Uh, and when Paul later writes the Hebrew letter, he sends stern warnings against Jews who still want to participate in the sacrifices at the temple. In Hebrews 4, he says, For it is not possible, Hebrews 10.4, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. No, they didn't like that. These are the things he was preaching, and these are, why, these are the reasons why they came against him. Animal, animal sacrifices represent involuntary sacrifice. Involuntary sacrifice of the innocent for sin and inadequate sacrifice. Christ, his sacrifice was voluntary. It was pure. It was totally adequate. And his did not cover sin as the animal sacrifices symbolized. His removed the sin. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, said John the baptizer. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, there's a lot of Jews that have problems with that. And Paul's going to meet them today. He's meeting them now. Now, these Jews from Asia, this is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. There, Paul established churches. We know he established the church in Ephesus. He didn't start that church, but he built it up. At Troas, Paul was very much involved establishing that church. And Jerusalem was filled with pilgrims at this time. This is the Feast of Pentecost, the Festival of Pentecost. Male Jews would be converging on Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. Up or two million people would be in Jerusalem at this time. And uh, here Paul uh, is coming back to Jerusalem. Those likely from Ephesus, it doesn't say exactly where, but they're from outside of Israel, they recognized Paul and they knew his teachings and they hated what he taught. And uh, it's likely at this point, the Jews that were connected with Paul before he was converted in Jerusalem wouldn't recognize him. If I went to the old country, New York, again, uh, I don't think anybody there who I knew would, would recognize me. I'm far more handsome now. And, um, and, and the humility just, you know, I reek of humility. I know, I say that a lot because I think it's hysterical. And maybe you've missed out. And if you've said, well, I'm tired of hearing it, that's an added joy for me. But we won't go there anymore. So the Jews from Asia, Asia, they saw him. They knew who he was. They heard his sermons. They knew his writings. And they put the finger on him. Seeing him in the temple. Now, Jerusalem Jews, as I mentioned, likely wouldn't recognize him, but they did, and they made sure the others uh, heard, heard about who, who was in their temple. There were two churches in those days. The church dominated by the, the Jewish people and the church that the Gentiles were the majority in, which also included some Jews, but they were 
Very different churches. I guess today, if you went to a non-denominational church such as this one, and then you went to, say, an Episcopalian church, it would be a radical. There's a radical difference. Well, this was much more uh, different and distinct, you could say. Uh, the, the distinction between the two was much more radical then than it would be now. Because these Jewish believers, they clung tight. They held tight. To, to Moses, and uh, uh, that was a, a big deal. And Paul was one of the few that not only saw it, but he articulated why it was no good. He told them why from their own scripture. He wasn't just making up rules, and most weren't prepared. They, these men, when they saw him and they pointed him out, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Uh these are unbelieving Jews that are doing this, that pointed him out, as opposed to the Messianic ones. Uh, the fact that Paul said that Moses was obsolete in his ritual, it just, you know, they weren't going to forgive that. There was no pass given to that. Uh, the fact that Paul said the rituals of Moses did not contribute to righteousness, uh, that, that, brought up as much, so much they're going to try to kill him. That's how serious they were about these rites and rituals. Now, the New Testament, the New Covenant, it made the rituals of Moses' law, number one, they were fulfilled in Christ, but it, it made them no, obsolete the same way the light bulb made kerosene lanterns obsolete. It just was, it took it to another level, and it was by God's design. When he writes the Hebrew letter, he tells them straight out, if you go to that temple and you offer blood sacrifices at that temple, you're not saved, because Christ did that. And uh, uh, this uh, was validated by the destruction of the temple not long after the Hebrew letter, and they had no place to offer blood sacrifices. Sacrifices, and they still have no place to offer blood sacrifice, as Hosea the prophet long ago told them that they would be without priests, without temple. And, and here we are today. So Paul is enemy number one amongst the Jews, preaching that the Gentiles could be saved without becoming a Jew, preaching grace, which was foreign to law. And uh, uh, this... It was what Jeremiah preached. I know I read this last session. It needs to be read again. Jeremiah 31, 31 tells us that this was God's plan. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And the day has arrived. In Christ Jesus, it's here. But again, they were closed to their own scripture and its teachings because of their emotionalism. Well, we find this in Christianity. We find Christians doing things. They don't care what the Bible says about a certain thing. They love doing it this way. And you say, you know, that's wrong. It's not right. The Bible preaches against that. Um, but, uh, you know, people claiming that they were taken over by the Spirit. Well, the Bible says that uh, the prophet is not made subject to the Spirit. That doesn't happen. We don't lose control like that. Anyway, coming back to this, verse 28 Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Well, the charges that he was teaching against Judaism are accurate. The charge that he brought Gentiles into the temple, uh, forbidden zone, forbidden for Gentiles, is a lie, is not true. Luke, of course, points out why he, they, he feels they might have said this. Now, Luke wasn't here for this. He could not go this far into the temple with Paul. So none of Trophimus, Luke, or any of the men coming with him, they were, they, he, this was relayed to them what happened. There were likely other Jewish Christians that were companions of Paul that would have been with him. And they may have ran some interference to keep him from being killed before the centurion gets there. And when we get to that part of, of the message, I, something very fascinating there awaits us. But these charges were the worst of all. These were capital 
religious crimes. Apostasy and desecration. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. Rome, uh, well, in fact, once in their history, before we get to Rome, once in their history, the Jews would have killed their own king if he took one step further into their temple. This was King Uzziah. He was a good king. But he got puffed up in his head and he felt he should be able to offer incense at the altar in the temple too. Well, that's forbidden. Only the priests, the sons of Aaron, were entitled to do that. And so they withstood him to, the, to his face. And God intervened, smit him, or smote him with leprosy, and he was quick to get out of there after that. But the point made is that they have a history of being very zealous uh, over their temple. And that's understandable. Well, the false accusations of him sneaking a Gentile in uh, uh, stirred up everybody just as much as the other two charges were. Now, there were signs up. As you entered the temple grounds, you'd come to the uh, courtyard of the Gentiles. And before you went to the court of the women, which was then followed by the court of the men, there were signs up. Any Gentile goes beyond this, we're not, <laughs> you're going to die, essentially. That's what it said. Rome... Rome authorized this. Rome told their own citizens, if you violate the Jewish temple like that and they kill you, we're not going to say anything. You deserve it because you've been warned. And so Paul's, Paul being there, what he had taught, of course, vilified him. His preaching and his presence had incited riots in six other, well, five other cities. Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus, and now Jerusalem. Because he was guilty of being a Christian. According to the words of Christ. According to the prophets of the Old Testament. According to the filling of the Holy Spirit. He was guilty of being a Christian and anyone who did not like Christians knew it. If they knew Paul, what he, what he stood for. There is enough evidence against him in their eyes. Verse 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Now, as I mentioned, there's these signs here, which Paul, Paul knew all about these barriers. Later, he writes the Ephesian letter. He survives this, of course. And... In that letter, he brings up this partition, this division. The Jews loved this division, that you could not come closer to God unless you were one of us. That's what that sign meant and why they would kill you if you stepped further. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. See, that kind of preaching is what has gotten him in trouble. Well, I mean, from the Jewish perspective, from the natural perspective, with God, he's not in any trouble. He's doing what he's supposed to do, what he's called to do. And the religious hatred, as often is the case today, was atomic, volatile. Well, it's set off here. Interesting, Trophimus, the Ephesian, mentioned here, he's loyal to Paul to the end. When Paul takes up his last known letter... Second Timothy, he says, Trophimus, I have left sick in Miletus. Paul could not heal him. These kind of gifts are not ours to possess. They are God's to distribute whenever he decides to distribute them. And here is the great apostle Paul. He could not hear, heal his longtime companion, Trophimus. So he had to leave him in Miletus sick. And so and what I like out of that is after all of this, this apparent failure, this big, big, this, you know, uh, uproar, those companions stuck with him. Well, Paul, if you just, you know, appease more, if you just stop preaching that, if you just, none of that. They knew that they were called to serve the Lord by serving the man that God called to serve the Lord. And in their case, it's Paul. And Peter had his two loyal uh, attendants, and, and so did Apollos. Paul warned, don't let this get out of control and start you know, giving pastors celebrity status and making it a competition, trading them like baseball cards. Uh, anyway, 
uh, verse 30, And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. They went to lockdown right away. Now, they probably would have stoned him because they had you know, little boxes of stones everywhere. It seems like, where did they always come up with these stones? You go to a city, you can't find stones. But then that city, they were there. Little piles of them. Uh, anyway, history is pretty much silent on Maybe they had, like, concealed carry for stones. <laughs> you know? I don't know. But uh, they were always ready with them. Any, anyway, uh, you know, not to beat up on James again too much. He's guilty of some things here. His letter is no less the word of God than Paul's. But uh, had it not been for James and the Jerusalem pastors, Paul would not have been in this situation. Due to their insistence that he demonstrate his Jewishness, they failed. But that... That part is, okay, you, you, knowing the, the dynamics of Jerusalem, you can understand that. Uh, what, what is difficult to understand is that they abandoned him. There's, there's no evidence that they, they reached out to him at all. And thanks to their advice, it cost him a beating. The gospel would be spread nonetheless, even more so, but that was God's doing. Uh, when they, they would have heard about the uproar, here in Jerusalem and the mob. But they, again, seemed to just wash their hands of Paul and was glad to be rid of him. You can understand that on a human level, but on a spiritual letter, letter, level, you, you can't justify it. When Peter was in jail, the church gathered and they prayed for his release. There's no mention of anybody gathering in Jerusalem praying for Paul. Of course, his Gentile, and, and some of the Jews were with him too, uh, the, his companions, they, they certainly would have been praying for him. I wonder if Paul recalls this later when he writes to Timothy. He says this years later. At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. And then he adds, may it not be charged against them. Well, if it was James in the church of Jerusalem or if it were other believers somewhere else, because it certainly wasn't at the time he wrote it because he said, Luke is with me. So all did not forsake him. He had no hard feelings. He never attacks James. We never read about him. He points out some things in earlier letters about James. But going forward, we don't hear him holding a grudge or retaliating. What he did do is to continue preaching and teaching and exhorting Christianity according to Jesus Christ. Verse 31, now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And maybe the delay in time was they had to get the rocks. I mean, because I mean, you have to account for this. Why didn't they just beat him to death? Well, they were hitting him. They were striking him. Uh, and maybe they had planned to beat him to death. Uh, but uh, that attempt at appeasement turned deadly against him. It failed. A lesson for us, um, a lot of people are very offended when you don't appease them, when you don't meet them halfway, when it's not their place to be met halfway. Uh, and I, I hope we learn from these kind of lessons in the scripture, uh, because Christians will pull stunts in church that they would never pull anywhere else, because they know the world wouldn't put up with it. But they think the church is supposed to just appease them. And it's, it's heartbreaking to go through it over and over and over. And it's so widespread, you're not going to stop it on a large scale. But maybe on an individual scale, um, and I know we can because I've seen Christians, you know, say, you know what? I don't like that, but I know where I belong and I got your back nonetheless. And, and that's, that's quite noble, I think. News came to the commander, verse 31 of the garrison, that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Well, the lookouts from the Antonio Fortress there could see what was happening on the temple ground. I think I'm one of those that believes what is known today as the Temple Mount was really the Antonio Fortress of, of Rome. Uh, the, Rome had 6,000 troops there, and you couldn't put them on that little piece of real estate that 
some uh, archaeologists claim, well, this was the fortress and this is the Temple Mount. 600 feet to the south would have been the temple by the Gihon Spring. And the elevations would have accommodated the lookouts looking down, watching over the city, because the, the, the Jews were notorious for resisting the presence of the Romans. We'll come to that in a moment. Uh, this, where it says the commander, that uh, Greek word, kiliarch, is a commander of a thousand men. And we're not to believe that's all that they had. That is a modern-day infantry battalion commander. And that's a thousand men is about an infantry battalion. He's going to take two companies, four companies make up a battalion. He's going to take about 200 men with him, because we know that, because he calls two centurions. And the centurions had a hundred men over them. Uh, when they were on the battlefield, that number wouldn't be higher for several reasons. They would have artillery and other things under them too. But just anyway, I just like saying these things. Uh, maybe, well, you got to see what's going on. You have to understand this, this is volatile. This can get out of hand very quickly. And so uh, this commander, his name is uh, Lysias. We know that from chapter 23, Claudius Lysias. And he does not hesitate. Not only does he not hesitate, he takes command instantly. He knows what to do, and he executes it, and it is successful. And he's a reasonable man. Every time we read about these centurions in the scripture, they're noble characters. All of them are, are, are men that you, you have to admire to some degree. Now, here's what I, when I mentioned earlier, we're going to come across something that I, I find uh, just thrilling spiritually. Had it not been for this man who was on Caesar's payroll under Caesar's authority, Claudius Lysias, Paul would have been killed. And that would have been it for him. No letter to the Ephesians. You would not have that section in chapter 6 of the Ephesian letter. We talked about put on the whole armor of Christ, having done all to stand, therefore stand. You would not have, by grace you have been saved, not by works, but by faith you've been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. You wouldn't have the Philippian letter. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I, you know, uh, just that uh, and powerful, um, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and deceit, traditions of men, the traditions of the world that he wrote to the Colossians. You wouldn't have the Colossian letter. You would not have Philemon, which has refreshed my soul, Philemon. I'm sending you Onesimus, a runaway slave, your property. Treat him right. You wouldn't have First and Second Timothy. You would not have Titus. And you wouldn't have the Hebrew letter. Eight letters in all would never have been. They would have been aborted. Had Paul been killed this day, but for the quick action of Claudius Lysias, we have him. See, God has his agents. Whether they're signed on with God or not, he is sovereign over all the earth. And when he flexes, the outcome is always to his glory. And our role is to be on that side of the glory. And not on the side of the rebuke. I mean, he took uh, Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, history's kings. All of them uh, were under his authority, even though they were uh, mostly opposed to the Yahweh of, of the Jews. So by this courtyard hero, the sword saved the pen. And, uh, you know, I, you, the temptation is to want to just continue on this, but that's enough to sit. When you think about, if it wasn't, I'm repeating myself, I, I know, if it was not for his command presence, if it was not for how his troops responded to his authority, uh, and it's just things for us to think about, we wouldn't have those letters. Verse 32, he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander... And the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Oh, man. How sore, how sore was Paul days after? 
I mean, he just shows up. He's trying to, to do the right thing, which was the wrong thing. And I, I love that Luke points this out. He says, Paul wasn't, he's not Christ. As honorable a servant he is, he's not perfect. And his imperfections, some of them are, are given to us. And, and this is one of them. And, and we'll, I'm happy about that. I mentioned that some commentators try to run defense for Paul and try to say, well, you know, Paul wasn't wrong. And, well, I, I disagree with them. And, and you should, too. Side with me. If we gang up on them, they don't have a chance. <laughs> anyway, uh, in verse 32, Lysias, uh, the, again, this command figure, wasted no time. He could have been apathetic. He could have said, oh, great, another, another Jewish uprising. Let them beat each other up for a little bit. Then we'll mosey on down. No, he, he, he kicks into gear. And it says, when they saw the soldiers... Well, that's an impressive sight. You have 200 men coming to you with shields and swords and helmets and spears, and they are in order. There's not this, you know, motley crew just kind of showing up. Uh, they are under command. How many, how much of this Christians need to learn? How many Christians think that disorder is somehow honoring the Holy Spirit when it is not? You know, we shouldn't be afraid of this. Of, of things being in their proper place. Uh, look at Genesis chapter 1, and, and you get an idea of God putting everything in its place the way he wanted it and was very happy. God loved his creation. He saw that it was good, and uh, so he should. Anyway, today's bottle-throwing thugs, thug activists, if they stood up against this Roman, <laughs> this Roman uh, detachment, they would have been slaughtered. Uh, and so would the cameramen along with them. <laughs> uh, you know, activism, it didn't make Budweiser. Uh, anyway, <laughs> they saw Paul, verse 27, but verse 32 says they saw the soldiers, and yet these religious people could not see the Lord Jesus Christ. Religious people with a defective spiritual view. Just because someone's religious doesn't mean they're right. In fact, most of the time, it means they're wrong. If you add up all of the religious people on the planet, how many of them would come out uh, loving biblical Christianity and be guilty of being a Christian, of being, uh, pursuing Christ-likeness? They stopped beating Paul, it tells us. How many blows did he endure? How many do you have to endure? Well, from whatever it is in life as a Christian, just life in the curse, you've done nothing wrong, and yet you have to, you're, you're being beaten by something. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's mental. You can fill in the blanks. Uh, but here, not a peep comes from Paul in complaint. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I look at this, I mean, humbled by it. You know, if... if I would be saying, why couldn't you have stopped, you know, why couldn't the troops showed up like five minutes earlier? Why do I have to suffer the aches and the pains and the shame? Because they can't get God right. Well, we, we know the answer to this. We know that Satan has blinded them. Our youth, our youth, I was talking to one of the pastors, you, know, you think they know things because, they, you know, they're beginning to see things in their own you know, less dependent on mom and dad. They, they think they know. And unfortunately, some parents think, oh, yeah, my kid's the smartest person alive. Just ask yourself, would you ask advice for life from yourself when you were 17 or 16? I would, I would get a court order of protection against me <laughs> when I was 17. So, and so, you know, how do we deal with that? We adults. Well, we try to keep them around us to influence them in righteousness. We try to point out why things are wrong. We try to let them know, look, you don't have to like this. This is a fact. There's a real devil. And he could care less that your parents are saved. If he can't break them, he's going to try to get to you. And I'm trying to do you a favor and get between you and him. And you're kicking and screaming and whining the whole way. And you go to church, but you don't behave like a Christian when you leave church. And you only sit in the pew and listen because you're afraid the pastor's going to throw something at you if you're not. Well, I, I wouldn't do that. 
I would like to do it once. But anyway, you, how do you communicate to them that you love them so much that you want them to have truth? Well, be ready for that fight. Don't you back down, you parents. Don't you cave in. You just stay strong. You keep praying. You keep the faith. God is faithful, even if we're not. And you parents that may not have to suffer this, you count your blessings. You thank the Lord. Don't you dare judge other parents. You hold to the faith. You understand that this planet has suffered violence in the way of sin. Sin has done violence to humanity, to the will of God. It is serious business. And we have no time for uh, self-righteousness. We're all in this together. It does not mean that you endorse things that are wrong. It just means you learn, you learn more and more how to handle them. One of the things I enjoy about getting older is there is a mellowness. There is, you know, when you see somebody all messed up. In the earlier days, it was like, well, let's just shoot them. <laughs> it's just got to solve the problem right there. But, you, you know, you get older and it's like, you know, let's give them some time. Let's work through this. It's not easy to be criticized, to go up to your neighbor and say, you know what, your house is the ugliest house on the block, and we've decided to burn it down. You, I mean, it's, it, you just learn to just suffer a little bit. So, anyhow, uh, and that is the evidence of Christianity. That is proof that I am a Christian because I am pursuing Christ. And, uh, you know, it makes you think, well, if I've learned things over the few decades that I've been living and 10 years from now, how much smarter am I going to be? Therefore, how much dumber am I? <laughs> you can't win. The pursuit of righteousness is worth it. And that's, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to communicate. Verse 34. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when they could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. In verse 35. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Well, Paul got carried away. <laughs> I, I just admire how when Claudius Lysias gives a command, it's done. What would it look like if this troops go, well, really? I mean, the steps are steep. They, they, they did what he told them to do. Verse 36, for the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. Well, it's not humorous that they cried the identical word. They hurled the identical word toward Christ away with him. Paul's master in John 19 verse 15 tells us that same thing. Away with him. Uh, verse 37, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? Verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? And so here we have another look at the commander. He's not, you know, no, shut up. You know, <laughs> you cause enough problems for one day. He's dialoguing. Of course, that Paul was, was speaking to him in the Greek because Paul was multilingual, at least bilingual. Uh, he probably spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and maybe a little Latin thrown in. Uh, anyway, uh, again, you admire that he's going to dialogue. Now, this Egyptian that is referred to, the Jewish historian Josephus had, had a bit to say about him. He said he was a false prophet, this Egyptian. And what I like about these, the Jewish Old Testament writers and other historians is when they don't like you, they weave it into their account or by, by either omission or, or commission. Here, Judah, you know Josephus lived at this time. He knew the name of this Egyptian, but he won't tell us. He won't give him, he won't give him the satisfaction kind of a thing. And I, I, I admire that. So we don't know the name of the Egyptian. Luke may have known it. And you know, I'm not writing that guy's name down. He was a nut. Uh, and, 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 and a violent one. I mean, these assassins he had, they were killing people daily. They were terrorists in Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus tells us that he gathered his followers 
on the Mount of Olives, which looks, overlooks Jerusalem, and he was going to command that the walls of Jerusalem come tumbling down. And uh, the, the Romans found out, and, and, and before he got to that point, they marched on him. They, they <clears throat> killed many of them, captured others, and dispersed them. The Egyptian escaped with others. Uh, so that's the background to this. This is what the commander is up against. He's thinking, hey, I got this assassin here. This can get really ugly because they were zealots. They were totally against Roman authority. That word assassin uh, is, in the Greek, is a derivative from the Latin. It means dagger men. So they would come to Jerusalem, especially during the festivals, and mingle in with the crowds. And if they marked you, if you were a target for being pro-Roman or too tolerant of Rome, uh, say a tax collector, for example, uh, they would uh, kill you they, with the dagger. They'd get up close to you and, and, and they would sta- stab you. They were a violent, fanatical, anti-Roman revolutionary group. And this is, uh, these, so these are the times that Paul was living in. Uh, they, uh, Josephus says they had boldness to enter the temple ground and do killings there. So none of this is a shock. Peter, he says, not directly with this, but speaking of Christian behavior in contrast to this kind of zeal for religion. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. That's quite a leap. Go from murderer to a gossiper. I mean, and Peter puts them all together. And he's saying, there needs to be evidence that you are a Christian. And if you're doing these things... Where is the evidence? And without that evidence, what does that do to your relationship with Jesus Christ? So it is a serious matter. Uh, You know, to hear what the scriptures say, to come to church, to claim to be a Christian, and then to leave church and put on the uniform of the unbeliever, of the Antichrist, um, Uh, That is enough evidence to prove that you are not a believer, and that won't go well for you, and you're probably hurting other people in the process, too. Because you just pick up things. You pick up things from the world. It sounds good. What do you know? If you're young, what do you know about what is true and what is false? How will you know? Well, God has put into your life those who are overseers. For your good, your well-being. And Satan, he tries to get people to hate their parents. That's why God put it into the commandments. You shall honor your mother and father. He knew what Satan would do. I think it's, it's good every now and then, as Christians, to read aloud to your children the Ten Commandments. I haven't done it to my kid, but I'm convicted now. Right here in front of everybody. <laughs> Give me a moment. <laughs> I don't have to. I just walk into the house. I, I, I personify the Ten Commandments. They just look at me and say, wow, <laughs> there's Moses. Anyway. <laughs> well, verse 39. Well, my, my dad used to say that I personified Methuselah. He said, slow as Methuselah. And you figure if you live to be 900 and, what, 68 years old, how fast could you move? <laughs> so he'd send me for something, and, you know, as a kid, you just, you know, dumb. And I'd get back two hours later, and that's when the charge would come. Anyway, verse 39. But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in, in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So Paul indicates that he is a citizen of Rome, that Tarsus is not an average city. Tarsus had a a serious library. Uh, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra uh, had their first meeting there in Tarsus. Uh, That was uh, several decades earlier. Uh, But again, known for its scholarship and its culture. And and, uh, Lysias would have picked up on that. He would have said, okay, I'm dealing with a person who is not this, you know, crude assassin. And he's going to yield the floor to 
uh, uh, Paul. So here Paul uses his citizenship to serve Christ. Later he's going to use it to dodge an assassination. And remember those 40 men that I mentioned earlier in chapter 23. When they're looking to assassinate Paul, Paul is going to exercise his civil rights to the glory of God. It's okay. It's okay to, to, to do that. I know some may be confused about, you know, what do you do with your citizenship as being a Christian? Well, you have two citizenships. You honor the first one in heaven first, and the other on earth is secondary. Uh, but they're not always in conflict. Verse 40, so when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying. Now, we won't get to what he said till next session. He tried this at Ephesus, but his companions, his friends, it tells us, they restrained him. They, Paul, we're not letting you go in there to speak to this crowd because they will kill you. And uh, uh, this is when he was in Ephesus, and had they killed him, we would not have, uh, we might have the Galatian letter, but we wouldn't have Romans and Corinthians. So his friends were instrumental in preserving him there. Nothing short of a miracle that this mob calmed down to hear what he had to say. Um, So, of course, the Lord doing it, Since Paul met the risen Christ, the Messianic prophecies, all of them, fell into place. All of a sudden, his Bible made sense like it never did before. You who are born again have had that same experience with your New Testament. It's like, oh, I get it now. And when when this happens to a person, we tend to assume that it will be the same for everyone else who we tell about Christ. When I became a Christian, I was so giddy with Christ that I couldn't wait to tell my friends. I lost all of them. I remember calling one. I could hear him in the background. He's not here. And she said, tell him I'm not here. And, I, you know, so this was Paul. He's thinking, after all these years, as seasoned an apostle as he is, you would think he would know better. But his heart was for Israel. He, he, he just wanted to preach to them. He said, listen, guys, hear me out. And and they're going to listen to him until he gets to one word. One word lights the powder keg, which which reveals their prejudices, their racism. And that word was Gentile. Not like the Jews are the only ones with this problem, not at all. But this is how what he was up against. And so uh, here, his companions, they knew this wasn't going to be good. Agabus said this was what happened when they chained Paul, the Roman soldiers, before they carted him up the stairs. They said two chains, one on each side, just as Agabus had said he would be chained. Now it looks like Paul has failed. That's a heavy thing for a leader to be perceived as a failure in the eyes of those whom he is leading. And yet God knew this wasn't a failure. God knew he was going to use this, catapult Christianity deeper into Europe, unlike Paul ever could have done preaching in synagogues only. He'll get back to preaching in synagogues, but first he's going to have some jail time. And there he is going to make the most of it. Those letters that I read, four of them came after this experience in jail. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those are all jailhouse letters. And... Uh, Paul grew from this experience. We look at his life. Jesus said this, Wisdom is justified by her children. Luke chapter 7, verse 35. In other words, when you see the outcome of the moves that were made in righteousness, because the world will make unrighteous moves and say the end justifies the means. The Christian won't do that. The Christian will stay confined to righteousness before they can say, Righteousness justified. Uh, The the outcome is justified by righteousness. Uh, So this is Paul's first step towards Rome. Causes us to say to ourselves, perhaps, what about my first steps in Christ? What first steps have I taken? I I remember when I took the first step to serve in a church. I I mean, just, I hope I never forget that. I remember when I took the first step to do this, to do that, in Christ. 
This first, this is his first step to Rome, and it is going to be quite a ride. Very beneficial for us all. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, once again, the lessons laid out before us, all this suffering and pain from your servant, trying to reach souls to get them into the kingdom of heaven. He's going through this because of love, the Christ-likeness, to be mistreated on behalf of others for a greater cause than this life. If you have been listening and you've not opened your heart to Christ, you are the kind of person that a man like Paul would have suffered beatings, even death for, to be able to preach you preach to you the truth concerning God. If you would like to receive salvation, then come and get it. Make the confession. Take the step. What holds you back? The opinion of men? Pride of the self-will? If you would like to receive Christ as your Savior, then make this confession. Make this prayer. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I am guilty before you. And I ask you to forgive me. There's no one else that is good enough to die for me, that has died for me, and is powerful enough to rise again in demonstration that if I come and submit to you as my Lord, I will be granted a place in heaven forever. And I come to you and I ask you to forgive me. And from this day forward, be not only the one that saves my soul from judgment, but the one who lords over my life. I give my life to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this confession this morning, when invited, may they not turn away, but may they accept the invitation to share their confession. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.